All right, we are in the series, The Certainty, and today I um, have bitten off probably too much to try to bite off. I'm biting off a theme that is pervasive through the entire Bible, but we're seeing it particularly in Luke. And it's going to be like the glue that holds pieces together. And so usually in a message, we like to focus on the pieces. So focusing on the glue, I hope, will be helpful to you as you get a bigger picture. And for some of you, it's like, oh, I hope that's your experience. Uh, So bear with me as this is a little bit more heady as we put all the pieces together. So we are in the series called The Certainty because in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, Luke explains the reason why he's writing, so that we might know the certainty of the things of which we've been instructed. So that's Luke 1, 4. And then um, in the kind of the piece that we're developing the theme from today, and you'll see in Luke 10, verse 11, know this for certain. Now that comes from this, the certainty, but this is the title today, the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. And so this concept, the kingdom of God, is a huge concept and it is the glue that holds so many pieces together throughout the entire Bible and it holds all of Jesus' teaching together. That's what he taught about uh, centrally, his whole ministry, and yet it is so powerfully misunderstood. And so we need to t- talk about that. These are central concepts and there's two common misunderstandings. The first misunderstanding is this, that the kingdom is here, we no longer have to wait, here is the political overthrow and our king reigns forever. And that's the position that the early um, adopters of Jesus being the Messiah were hoping for. And that is uh, the surprise that there is more to it than that. The second misunderstanding that is more common today is we're still waiting for the kingdom to come. We're still waiting for the kingdom, and of course, there's the confusion of Jesus teaching the kingdom of God and all about the kingdom of God, and Matthew, who is a Jew, uh, does what Jews do. Often, they'll substitute out the word heaven to refer to the same concept rather than saying God too many times, which they don't want to take the name of God in vain. So he talks about the kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of heaven. So we make this big mistake to think that we're still waiting for the kingdom of heaven and someday we'll get there or Jesus will come back and then the kingdom of heaven comes. And so we have this two misunderstandings. It's, it's either so here we got to make it happen politically or it's so not here we're just waiting. And we discover throughout this huge concept that it's bigger than all of that. And so this verse, Luke 10, 11, we need to kind of see the context of this, know this for certain, and we've been talking about the certainty, uh, the kingdom of God has come near. And so one of the things about the context here is that um, he says it twice in the space of a few verses, and he's instructing his disciples to when you go out and share the kingdom, this is what you proclaim, the kingdom of God is near. And then when you have the early adopters and acceptors, that's great. When you have those that are rejecting you, that is going to be a judgment to them. The kingdom of God is, be know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near, and then brush the dust off your sandals and move on. It'll be a judgment to them. 
And so that's kind of the context there. We've got to figure out what is going on with know this for certain. The kingdom of God is here. Now, I need to introduce to you, if you've never heard about it before, a concept that is a, a biblical interpretive concept that is very helpful when you're interpreting prophecy. Uh, some theologians refer to it as simply foreshortening, but I refer to it as prophetic foreshortening. And what is taking place is, in the prophecies of the Old Testament, you have prophetic statements about the coming of the kingdom, which is going to come with the coming of the anointed king. And in those statements with the prophecies, you have all of his coming crunched together as if it's a single uh, continuous scene. But what the prophet sees as if to say they have this prophetic lens in their vision, they're seeing a mountain range on the horizon, they're describing the scene of the coming of the kingdom as this mountain range. What they can't see as they describe it all in one continuous sentence almost, is that the first coming mountain is got a valley between it that takes a long time before the glory of the second coming mountain, which is greater behind it, takes place. But as they're prophesying it, it's all described as one scene on the horizon. And so you can understand why the people reading the prophecies would expect it to include all of the elements combined into one scene at the arrival of the king. And so some of the best places to get at that prophetic foreshortening concept is uh, we've already referred to it last, last week, a week before I get, this valley gets lost for me too, from, from the past. Uh, in Isaiah 60, verse 1 and 2, when Jesus stands up and says, today in your hearing you have uh, seen this prophecy fulfilled. He was uh, quoting and reading Isaiah 60 verse 1, but he stops mid-sentence and does not say uh, the pieces about the second coming elements, which the prophet sees all as one. Jesus stops before he says, and to fulfill the vengeance of the Lord. That's coming later, Whereas what's coming first is he's releasing the captives, he's declaring the year of God's favor, he's declaring grace, and all this is coming first. Another spot that's classic for this is Isaiah 9, where you get the first mountain described, a child is born, a king has come, but in the same sentence, he's called Almighty God, Everlasting Father, he's going to rule on David's throne forever, you get the forever reigning glory where the government is on his shoulder, and you have the fulfillment of this political kingdom where all other kingdoms are subservient under one eternal forever kingdom, and that is the second range, the second mountain, and it's all described all as one, and so when we get this, know this for certain, the kingdom of God has come near, this is the, the context, and there's a declaration that's taking place there. Now, in that context, there's something goofy going on for us as a reading, and only Luke records it. In chapter 9, you have 12 that are sent out to proclaim the kingdom of God has come near. And they're given the authority of Jesus, so they're authorized with power to proclaim and power to confront the rebel kingdom, which is actually a hidden kingdom of darkness. 
And they're able to cast out demons and heal people by the authority of Jesus. And that story is told about the sending out of the 12. But here in Luke uh, chapter 10, we have another sending out. It's a sending out of 72. And just says 72 others. And so it's kind of interesting what is going on there. And they don't go to the Jewish towns, they go to the Gentile towns. And what's taking place here are two things. The 12 disciples represent the 12 tribes and the 12 patriarchs, but now in the New Covenant era. And they're the pillars of the New Covenant. And they go out and proclaim to Judaism. The 72 corresponds with the table of nations in Genesis 10. And Luke is fascinated by this because he's a Gentile. And in that fascination of this, he's, he's the only one that's latched onto it and shared it in its detail and the impact of what this means. The whole global reach and the global movement of the kingdom is beginning now with the king. And he just is, he's actually giving us a preview of the global great commission which comes at the end of his ministry and after the resurrection, all the book of Acts tells about that global reach. And so you've got this going on in the the kingdom of God has come near. So Jesus gives a preview here of his kingdom. Now, in Luke 10, 3, we have a shocking statement that is very different for people thinking politically now. Now the revolution is here. Jesus, in sending them, says, now go, I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. I'm sending you out like lambs among wolves. Their only weapons are going to be weapons that are different from the world, and they're going out in the world to confront all rebel kingdoms with proclamation and power and grace and glory, not swords, not political uh, power plays, not undermining and revolutionizing and upending all the tyrant kingdoms over them. It's proclamation and power and grace and glory, and their weapons are the weapons of Jesus, and it's all going to be done Jesus-style. And this is misunderstood in that day, and purposefully so, so that Jesus-style ministry can actually take place and he will be rejected by those with this big misunderstanding and even crucified. And then Jesus-style ministry will then be introduced and carry forward and establish a kingdom that we need to talk about and continue to see the glue here next. So, let's start with point number one. There is only one forever kingdom. There are many kinds of kingdoms on earth. There's dictatorships, there's republics, there's democracies, there's monarchies, there's several kinds of monarchies, but there's only one forever kingdom, and it's a monarchy, it's not a constitutional monarchy, and it's all going to rest on Jesus' shoulders. It says the child is born and the government will be placed on his shoulders. Now, this has very practical implications for us because we need to decide who's going to govern our own little kingdoms. Because the, the, the root, the fundamental root sin of humanity is that we want to run our own lives and ignore God. 
and do our own thing and create our own happiness and write our own story apart from God. And the whole story is God created you, God wants to reign over you, and he has a benevolent reign, it's for your good. Will you take the government off your shoulders and put it on his shoulders voluntarily and enter into covenant with him? That is what we viewed in three baptisms this morning. They're saying yes to the king. You'll be my Lord. Yes, I want to submit to you and let you write my story. Yes, I'm going to follow your principles and your order. I want to be a part of your forever kingdom. And so I'll just lay it out there. Jesus begins and brings the kingdom now because he's king. But there's a lot that's going to have to happen before the fulfillment in glory, which is at the second coming. And so I want to lay that out for you. So it begins in the gospel with the announcement of the angel to Mary in Luke 1.33. We read, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will have no end. Now this is not a new idea that the angel is proclaiming. This was the central concept throughout the entire history of revelation from God. Okay, So if you start at the very, very beginning and you need to look at the creation narrative all over again, the kingdom reigning theme is built through the fabric of the creation scene. In the first three days, the realms are, are, the realms are created. In the next three days, the corresponding rulers of those realms are identified. And then in the sixth day, uh, the ruler of all, the co-regents with the one sovereign king, Human beings are invited to reign with God in a godly way over this creation. And then the story goes that these kings became rebels and wanted to run their own lives. And we now follow suit and are born in that condition of wanting to run independent of God. And so the kingdom theme then carries through the rest of the Bible. From Adam, it moves to Abraham. We're skipping some things here, but moves to Abraham where God chooses one man through whom he's going to establish his kingdom out of the rebel world that has forgotten him. And he's going to bless that man with offspring and their, that kingdom will be all his offspring. That's the promise. And it's a challenge to Abraham to believe that's possible. And yet that carries the theme forward. Abraham is told before he even has his first child that this nearly nation-sized offspring will then experience 400 years of waiting for them to be a kingdom and they will be under the domination of another kingdom. And that God would then, when the timing is right, send a deliverer to them and then Exodus tells this whole story how they'll exit out of the rebel kingdom that believes in all these other gods and they will serve the one God and establish the eternal kingdom where God lives in their midst. Okay? But they're still thinking in earthly terms and that's what the whole story of Exodus is about. Moses is the deliverer. Moses leads them out of Exodus. They go into the wilderness. God establishes a covenant system where he will live in their midst and they will worship him and he will be their God and they will be their people and they will establish a kingdom. Before that time, there were just nomads 
countryless, and then slaves, and now a kingdom, and they didn't have to build it. And they go in, are given the promised land because the time is now right. You should see some parallels here to our lives as this revelation starts to roll out. Now, even in the time frame of Moses, God is telling his people, here's how it's going to go down. And you have a choice to make. You can remain faithful and I will bless you, or if you reject me and my covenant, you will go off into exile and you'll be countryless and you'll be without a kingdom. And sure enough, down through the history, although they're warned and warned and warned, they experience exile and no kingdom and silence from God and the reign is all disrupted. But throughout the entire time, hope is given from the prophets. There's a coming king and he's going to establish a forever kingdom and he's going to restore you. The timing is even established through the prophet Daniel, and so the timing is now rolling forward in such precision that at the arrival of Jesus, there's this messianic, revolutionary, fever pitch, growing revolutionary thinking where there's pockets of revolution that's taking place politically with power thinking, and there's false messiahs declaring themselves, let's take over the Romans. It's time. You know the prophecies. And then arrives Jesus, and he refuses to take over the way everybody expects. And it's creating great disappointment among the hopeful and great confusion among the followers. But be certain the kingdom is near was the proclaiming message. So it was all about timing that the kingdom of God is near. Point number two is that this kingdom arrived mysteriously and with secrets in no way like anybody expected. Even though they had the prophecies and in hindsight, After Jesus explains them, it all fits together so beautifully. But while it's happening, it is so very confusing. And it's intentionally so, so that the rejection and crucifixion from his own people actually takes place. And they're responsible because of their lack of faith. In Luke 8.10, we read, So he said, The secrets of the kingdom of God have been given for you to know, but to the rest it is in parables so that looking they may not see and hearing they may not understand. And so in this section he tells the parable that we're familiar with of the one who goes out and sows the seeds. This is what the kingdom of God is like. It's nothing like what they're expecting. It's like a farmer sowing seeds, remember? proclamation and power and grace and glory and this kingdom is going to come mysteriously from these seeds that are sown in the hearts of mankind that trust and begin to trust the character and the proclamation of this king even though it doesn't look anything like they're expecting it to look and Jesus explains the parable and he says in Luke 8:18 Therefore, take care how you listen. The king says, listen to what? The word of God, the secrets of the kingdom. That's what he's talking about. Take care how you listen. He says the seeds are going to be planted. Take care how you listen. These are seeds of the kingdom. And this is bigger than facts, bigger than truths of a kingdom, bigger than big ideas that create a kingdom. These are 
life-giving seeds of the kingdom that he calls the word of God. For whoever has, whoever has what? Whoever has the word of God received in their hearts and life planted in them, it says whoever has, more will be given to him. And whoever does not have, whoever does not have what? Whoever has not received these truths which Jesus is planting, the word of God which he's imparting, this proclamation with power and grace and glory, when you don't receive what I'm saying about the kingdom and about the truths of what God is teaching and how it works, when you don't receive it, even what you had before, your religion, your view of God, and how it worked for you, is going to be taken away from you. Even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. And then he goes on, parable after parable after parable. I just have to summarize briefly. Seeds now, harvest later. It's a mixed nature now with wheat and tares, weeds in our midst. Don't try to separate them now. We'll separate them later. It's going to start small now and grow huge. There's a king here now, and yet it's a kingdom here in humility. It's nothing like you expected. All the glory and the power and the supremacy is later. And the way that I'm going to lead this kingdom is going to be completely upside down from what you think it's going to be. It's going to be my style. In fact... I will become a seed. I will die and be planted. And I will be raised in a resurrection that will be the resurrection, the first in the harvest. And you, to receive it, will have to die and become a seed and allow the resurrection inside of that death to become a harvest in you. And now you, like the 72, will now be proclaiming to the globe the seeds, which are the life, the proclamation, and the power. And you're going to do it not with power of this world, not with weapons of this world. You're going to do it Jesus style. You'll take up a cross, and you'll follow me, and it'll look like suffering not revolution. It'll look like loving your enemies and praying for them and doing what's best for your enemies, not trying to kill them. It'll be a completely different kind of kingdom than you are looking for. You want to be my disciple? This is what it looks like. Point number three. Thank you. It's invisible now, except for previews, and visible later. So let me just talk that through uh, with some themes in Luke. We'll start at Luke 17, 20 through 21. When he, has asked, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with something observable. In other words, it's invisible now. What you're thinking of the kingdom is not what it is now. The kingdom I'm bringing right now is invisible, it's inward, it's spiritual, it's powerful, it's for those in the know, it's for those that receive it, 
for those who accept it, those who experience it, it is so real, they will never trade it away for anything. They'd rather die than trade that away. It is invisible to you. No one will say, see here, there, for you see the kingdom of God is in your midst. It's here. It's wherever Jesus is, and you can say it's in you. Later on, that'll be Paul's declaration over and over again. So it's invisible now, except for previews, invisible later. So the secrets are only secrets for a short time, and it's for timing's sake. So over and over again, when you're reading gospel, you get confused. Why isn't Jesus declaring himself? Why does he tell everybody to keep it a secret? Why is he just doing this? And there are rare exceptions. In Gentile regions, he says, go tell it, because that's not going to affect the timing. In Jewish regions, he says, keep this to yourselves. Don't tell it because it'll affect the timing and the crucifixion will take place too quickly. So it's secret for timing's sake for a short time. But it's gonna be a thing that everybody tells and it's no longer secret. It's our mission to declare, proclaim glory, power, grace, and his kingdom. Except for the previews, we run into this very strange thing in Luke 9, 27, when Jesus says, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. How odd is that? There's only some of the 12 who will live to see the kingdom. The rest of the 12 will see the kingdom after their lifetime. But some will see the glory of the kingdom before they die. What's he talking about? And the best way to explain it is how Luke does. In the very next verse, he's revealing how and who that preview came to. So in Luke 9, 28, the very next verse, about eight days after this conversation, he took along Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. This is what the theologians call the transfiguration. You can read it in multiple gospels. And what takes place, if you can just imagine, is that the curtain is drawn back. You're seeing Jesus in his first coming humility as suffering servant, but that curtain is drawn back for a preview of his second coming glory. He is otherworldly. He's the son of God. and they don't even know what to do with it. It's so glorious, they're freaked out and trying to make sense of it, and Peter makes a fool of himself, and Jesus says no, no, and makes some corrections. But they're seeing the glorified Jesus, which we will all see someday, but only a few see the preview. Paul was one who saw a preview, by the way. That's a different story for a different day. Jesus' humility is pulled back like a curtain. Let's take a look at verse 30. Suddenly two men were talking with him. Moses and Elijah show up. Now these are long dead. They're representatives who I've told you about Moses. He's the lawgiver. So he represents the law of the Jews. And then Elijah, he represents, he was the the, the teacher of prophets, he he's, represents all of the prophets. So you've got law and prophets, which is one way the Jews summarize the entire Old Covenant. Law and prophets. And they show up, and they're talking to Jesus, and he's in his glorified state. Of course, I, 
We're seeing Moses and Elijah, and how they knew it was Moses and Elijah probably is in the conversation between them, and, and we're given this information. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So they're talking about his departure, okay? Here's what's really cool. That word departure, guess what it is in Greek? That word departure is the word in Greek, exodus. They're talking about his exodus. And what that means is they're talking about how he's going to exit this planet. But it's not just how he's going to exit this planet. It's how he's leading the new exodus. It's how through his crucifixion and his resurrection, by becoming that seed and being buried and planting his resurrection like in all of us, how he's going to lead us out of domination of the evil regime of Rome, which is like the Egypt of the first exodus. And they're talking all about this exodus where Jesus is leading us and delivering us. He's the new Moses, the fulfillment of it all. One day, everyone will see. This day, only Peter, James, and John saw the glory of Jesus. And then, Jesus handcuffs them. Don't tell anybody about this. So, until it's fulfilled. So, they're not supposed to tell us until after the resurrection. And so, now we have it, as they're talking about it all. But they couldn't even tell the remaining disciples, what just happened. Now, I want to talk about the visible kingdom. In Luke 21, 26 through 27, we read, people will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming on the world because the powers of the heavens will be shaken. You need to read all of 21 as Jesus is teaching about the end times. But here's what he says very clearly. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So his kingdom came at first invisible. There was only previews of his glory. But he talks about the end of the world in an apocalyptic teaching. And he's going to return to cut off all the disaster at the end and establish his forever kingdom and take a look at the response of the people who see it and see his coming. People will faint from fear and expectation of the things that are coming. And when they see the glory of Jesus, they're split in two. Everyone sees Jesus' glory. Everyone bows. Everyone bows to his sovereign glory. There's no alternative, but it's too late for those who are in fear. And it's a rejoicing celebration for those who are in faith. And that's the best I can do at this point because I have a video to share with you to put it all together. Here we go. This is the Jesus Project. There's this beautiful poem. It's in the book of Isaiah. The city of Jerusalem has just been destroyed by Babylon, a great kingdom in the north. And all of these Jewish people, they've been sent away into exile. But a few remained in the city. And they're left wondering, what just happened? Has our God abandoned us? Right, because Jerusalem was supposed to be the city where God 
would reign over the world to bring peace and blessing to everyone. Now Isaiah had been saying that Jerusalem's destruction was a mess of Israel's own making. They had turned away from their God, become corrupt, and so their city and their temple were destroyed. Yeah, everything seems lost. But the poem goes on. There's a watchman on the city walls. And far out on the hills, we see a messenger. And he's running towards the city. He's running and he's shouting, good news. And Isaiah says, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news. Beautiful feet? Yes. The feet are beautiful because they're carrying a beautiful message. What's the message? That despite Jerusalem's destruction, Israel's God still reigns as king, and that God himself is going to one day return to this city, take up his throne, and bring peace. And the watchmen sing for joy because of the good news that their God still reigns. Now in the New Testament, we find this same phrase, the good news. It's the Greek word euangelion, and it's also sometimes translated with the word gospel. So when Christians say, do you believe the gospel, they mean, do you believe the news? But not just any news. In the Bible, this phrase is always about the announcement of the reign of a new king. And in the New Testament, the Gospels use this phrase to summarize all of Jesus' teachings. They say that he went about proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom. So Jesus saw himself as the messenger, bringing the news that God reigns. Yes, but the way that he described God's reign, it surprised everybody. I mean, think, a powerful, successful kingdom. It needs to be strong, able to impose its will, able to defeat its enemies. But Jesus said the greatest person in God's kingdom was the weakest, the one who loves and who serves the poor. And he said that you live under God's reign when you respond to evil by loving your enemies and forgiving them and seeking peace. This is an upside-down kingdom. Now, Jesus also said that this kingdom was arriving with him. Yeah, so for example, there's this really interesting story where there's a high-ranking Roman officer, and he comes to Jesus begging him to heal his servant. And he even calls Jesus his Lord, acknowledging that Jesus is his authority. Jesus praises this man for recognizing what no one else yet had, that not only was Jesus announcing God's kingdom, he was the king. And so the word gets out that this Jewish man from Galilee is talking and acting like he's the king of Israel. He's appointing 12 disciples, which are an image of Israel's 12 tribes. He's healing people, forgiving people their sins. And all of this so threatened Israel's leaders that they finally decide to have him killed. And Jesus let them. Yeah, which is a weird thing to do if you're trying to become king. That's right. But for Jesus... This is what had to happen. Jesus saw the sin and the devastation of his people Israel as just one small part of the entire human condition. How all humanity has rebelled against God, resulting in the tragedy and devastation of our whole world. So how is God going to bring his reign over such a world? Jesus believed it would be through an act of sacrificial love for his enemies. This is why in the Gospels, Jesus' crucifixion is depicted as his enthronement as the king of the Jews. Yeah, he receives a crown. He also receives a robe. He's exalted up, not onto a throne, but onto the cross. How beautiful are the feet that bring good news. And the good news now is that Jesus has defeated 
death and that he reigns as king, that he's dealt with our sin and corruption himself and that he's conquered it with his life and with his love. And then Jesus sends his followers to go out and keep announcing this good news of the upside down kingdom. And to invite everyone to give their allegiance to him, the king who defeated death with his love. Lord God, we thank you for your revelation to us and your plan. How glorious it is that you have made it possible for life to be planted back in us and resurrection to come out of the death that we have been living apart from you. We thank you for leading us out in the exodus even now as we are still in many ways in a wilderness waiting the glory. We ask you to lead us well and that we might see not only the glory of the kingdom now with you in us and life coming from us and new lives uh, stepping into the kingdom, but the eternal glory that we live in that hope now and allow that future to be that which we fix our eyes and our hope so that we have strength for endurance today. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We have a prayer team to the right of the stage. If you have a prayer need, whatever that might be, we'd love to pray for you. See you next week for the next episode of The Certainty.